The Mud Peddlers, a podcast where two nerdy ceramic artists share the behind the scenes of their worlds of clay. We're your hosts, Lindsay M. Dillon. And I am Dante of Earth Nation. So today we're going to do an episode on the things we wish we'd known. Yeah, stuff that as a beginner potter, if I could go back in time and come up to myself and be like, you have to know these things. They make your life way easier. Mm. They cost a little bit more work, but you'll appreciate them and so will other people. Yes. This is like a list of things we wish we knew. Uh, and we got a we got a whole list. We here. got a whole list. We got a whole list. And they're more specifically like techniques for actually making ceramic artwork, not so much like yeah. I think as we talked about before we turned on the recorder, yes. we kind of like the idea of doing like things we wish we'd known, like early business tactics, yeah. things we wish we'd known, selling online, or just stuff like that. Yeah, a lot of these are especially things that I appreciate. Like when I pick up a pot, I can immediately like you know for those of you who play Dungeons and Dragons or like Baldur's Gate or something like that, there's like a craft check or a profession check. Mm. These are things that other potters would probably notice in their craft. That's a lot of these are kind of stuff like you're probably going to figure these out sooner or later yourself. Mm-hmm. Can you can hopefully skip ahead a few steps. <laughs> yeah, you can hopefully we can hopefully <laughs> click this in your brain and be like, "Oh, that's what that is." Yes. But if you like guaranteed if me or Lindsay come up to our table and we notice all these things we're we'll be like, "Oh my god, this person's so fancy." So fancy. So fancy. Oh my god. Right? So let's Lindsay, what do we got on number 1? Ah, uh, okay. So we have smoothing out the rim. Yeah, absolutely. How do how do you smooth out your rims? So there's a couple different types of sponge that I use. I used to use the beginner sponge, right? Okay. The beginner sponge is like that round yellow one that comes in the beginner package, mm -hmm. and I would chop it in half. I'd cut it in half with scissors so that I could feel the clay through my fingertips mm. as I threw because when I first threw, I threw with a sponge. I still do. But now it's more of like I soak up water than it is for me to protect my fingers and whatnot. Yeah. But like as I got better and better, I would use a better quality sponge. And then I started using an elephant ear sponge, which holds Ooh, more water. Oh, those are so nice. Right? And then I started using a mud tool sponge. The, uh, the what is it called? The memory foam one. Oh, okay. Which yeah, is yeah. meant for smoothing out like really delicate things. Mm. And that's what I use now. And a lot of people use like a piece of plastic or a chamois. But at the end of your throwing, whether you're throwing a bowl or a cup or whatever you're throwing, unless it's really sculptural, if it's functional especially, mm -hmm. just get your sponge, like wet it a little bit, damp, arc it, fold it like a bridge over the lip of your mug. Mm -hmm. Do not have a rigid, pointy, squared out mug <laughs> at the top. Yeah. Don't do it. <laughs> and another thing to keep in mind, add to like keep that rim smooth, yep. is um, when you are turning your cup over onto a surface to dry it, mm. make sure that whatever surface you're putting it on is smooth. Because yes. yeah. for me, like one of the things I need to get in my studio to help with that is like, I just use like basic wooden boards. Yes. But I've been using these boards for so long that they've started developing developing ridges along the grain of the wood. Really? Yeah. So when I turn my, I, I noticed this for a while, yeah. when I turn my mugs upside down to start drying, they would be start making indentations yeah. in the rim of the cup. So just once you have your beautifully smooth yeah. rim, make sure that as you are handling the mug throughout the whole production process, yeah. up until it goes into the kiln for the bisque firing, yes. just keep, keep aware of that. And honestly, if you need to, like there's been a couple situations where I didn't realize that I had like messed up a rim slightly. Oh yeah. And then I would just take a, which call it like a little um brillo brush or whatever like the kind of like, oh, like, the... a, like a sander but it's not really sandpaper yeah it's yeah like... it's like a it's like an angry cloth. <laughs> it's an aggravated cloth. It's an aggravated cloth, yeah. But I just, I mean, I'm Lindsay, just like... get the angry cloth from the, from the, from the pantry. <laughs> Brings out a Brillo pad. <laughs> I mean, pretty much. That's pretty much what it is. You're not wrong. 
pan. And I just, you just, you just sand it off a little bit. Just like, and that'll, that'll That's like saying tea is spicy water. Tea is spicy Oh my God, I <laughs> love like, that. Like, you're not wrong, but. Tea, tea is spicy water. What did we say like a few episodes ago? Like, if icing is just. Oh, is, icing, is icing is just. Icing is just sauce. Yeah, cake Sh sauce. Sugar sauce. It's sugar sauce. Sugar sauce, yeah. Anyway. Icing is sugar sauce. Oh my God. As more of a, uh, more to that is if okay. you don't smooth out the rim while you're throwing, you have multiple chances to smooth out your rim. So if it's already in the bone dry phase, you can technically take a Brillo pad to mm -hmm. it, right? And if you don't do it at that phase, <laughs> you can even after the bisque, take an actual piece of sandpaper, arch it over the top of the rim and just sand it then. Mm -hmm. It's just easier to do it in the throwing process. Yeah. What's the next one? Slow drying. Slow drying is something that I get as far as questions go on Instagram all of the time, almost Every week, someone's like, I'm getting cracks in my pottery on the side. It's mostly on the side, because if you're getting cracks on the bottom, you probably just didn't condense your clay down enough um, or wedge it well enough. One of those or, two. Or it's too thick. Or it's just too, th it's super thick. But most of the time, most cracks can be prevented, not solved, prevented by just slow drying your stuff. And what I say by slow drying is please don't be in California <laughs> in the summer when it's a hundred something degrees and throw a pot and just like leave it out for five days straight and be like, oh, it's ready to go in the bisque. If it cracks, that's on you. That's you fault, <laughs> okay? What I suggest you do is after you're done throwing it, like maybe 30 minutes or an hour later when it's no longer super, super like moldable, just get a plastic bag. I like to use garbage bags because they're not porous, but don't use that like the bag at Albertsons or don't use the, the bag your clay came in. That's not gonna help, it's too rigid. Have it form over it and just lay it very gently on your slab of wood that you put all your pottery on mm -hmm. or whatever you put your pottery on and keep it there until you're ready to trim it. Check on it every other day or so or every day I do. And then when it's in the leather phase, start trimming it and then put it back the way it was. Yes. <laughs> put the bag over it again and let it slow dry. Mm -hmm. The high majority of the people that contact me about cracks just don't slow dry their pottery. And one, one way you can also check to see if it if you need to wrap it up tighter is if the area around the rim starts looking like it's a different color yes. than the bottom, that means the top part's drying out faster than the bottom. Yes. Yes. So what I will actually do is even like, honestly, because my studio gets so hot yeah. that I, as soon as I've thrown a piece, I will put plastic over it in like five minutes. Really? Yeah. Because on most of the time, the rim is somewhat firmed up well enough so that yeah. it, the plastic will won't indent the rim. Because we in California. Because we're in California. Yeah, it's hot here. And it's super hot. Yeah. So that's another way that you can check to see if you need to either wrap your piece up more. Yeah. Or just basically if it's not drying slow enough is when different parts of the cup will be different colors because one part is drying faster than the other. Yeah, no, that that's definitely something that it's kind of obvious just to your senses when you're intermediate. But as a beginner, you're like, wow, it's drying. That's a good thing, right? But like as a potter who does it every day or so, you're just like, oh, this one side is drying way faster than the other side, <laughs> which means there's a contradiction in moisture inside of whatever dome you put it in. And yeah. that's not good. It's not good. <laughs> it's the same reason there's a lot of cracks in sidewalks and whatnot. It gets real cold, gets real hot. It gets, <laughs> gets real windy, gets real not windy real quick. It's, 
You don't like it. It's hypothermia for clay is what it is. Oh, man. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, what's the next one there, Lindsay? Uh, so using wax resist. Now, you and I use wax resist yeah. different ways. So how do you normally use it? There's a couple different ways you can use it. But wax resist, what wax resist does is it makes a seal on whatever you put it on. So if I'm drying my pottery or if I'm making mugs and the handle I notice is a little bit more dry than the actual pot itself or the mug usually, I will score and slip it real good, make sure it has enough slip on it, make sure it's real good, real patched up. And then if I know that it's hot outside, I'll put wax resist over it because it makes kind of its own little dome. I'll, mm -hmm. of course, slow dry it still. Yeah. But I'll also put wax resist over it because it creates a layer of moisture to keep in there. Do you put it over the entire handle or just on the attachment points? Just the, on the attachment points and a little bit further up the handle, a mm -hmm. tiny, tiny bit. I actually put it over the whole handle. There's no shame. <laughs> There's no shame in that yeah. whatsoever. For the longest time, I resisted using wax resist. <laughs> I know. Well, during the winter, it's not a problem because stuff yeah. dries so slowly. But yeah, during- We get spoiled in the winter. We do. We're like, oh, it's fine. We can just leave the pottery out all day long. It's raining. There's enough moisture in the air. And then you come back two days later and your pottery's still not dry. And you're like, wow, this is great. <laughs> I can go to sleep and not do extra work. No. Yeah. Wrap it up. Oh yeah, another thing too is when, it, not just for handles, but if you were like, a lot of my work involves um, attaching sprigs or basically like, other pieces of clay that go onto the base. Yeah, it works for clay. sculpture, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, even for like the mugs that I do, like all the stamps that I use, those are technically like sprigs. Yeah. So I will also put wax resist over the entire yeah. stamp that I put on, over the entire sprig. And worse comes to worse, this also kind of has to do with wax, but if a piece is drying out too fast, after I attach the handle, but before I put on the wax, I will actually sometimes dip the entire mug in water really oh, quickly. Yeah. Like I'll just do like a 1001 up, I'll let it drain, get all the extra water out, wait like a minute or two for all the excess water to be absorbed into the, yeah. into the clay, and then I'll put wax on it. And that little dunk in water I found helps bring all of the elements of the mug, it, like the sprig, the handle, and the base mug itself, yeah. to a somewhat more similar moisture level. Yes. And that kind of helps with some of the cracking in addition to using the wax resist. I do that, I do that too. But what I do is I have a spray bottle. So what I usually do is whatever, pla like I'll throw all my stuff, mm -hmm. I'll attach all the handles, but instead of dipping them one by one and putting them back on the board, mm -hmm. what I'll usually do is I'll put them all there on the board. And as soon as I'm ready to make that dome of plastic to slow dry them over it, mm -hmm. I'll just get a spray bottle and I'll like blast like 20 sprays in there. like. Ah! And that usually creates a dome of moisture to where all the moisture kind of equalizes out in between all the mugs. Okay. And most of the time when I come back a couple days later, there'll be like a little rainforest of dripping. You know, and I'm like, cool, you, they're all wet enough, good. Do you ever have to worry about pooling of the spray bottle? Cause that's one thing I notice again, particularly when I see like beginners, yeah. is that they'll spray their pieces, then some of the water from the spray bottle will yeah. be like sitting in the bottom of the mug. No, I never so, I yeah. never spray directly. And what I'll usually do, if, say that if I have 20 mugs, and those 20 mugs are on a big board, mm -hmm. I will like four or five inches above that, I'll spray them all lightly so oh, that none okay. of the water gets direct. Like I'll never spray directly on a mug. Gotcha, I will okay. just spray them all like an AOE effect. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll put them back up or sometimes I'll spray the plastic itself and then put it on there and oh, know that the, because your clay is gonna drink any water you give it at a certain point of dryness. Mm -hmm. So I add that water so that it can be drank. drunk. Drunk. My consumed. pottery is consumed. Consumed. My pottery is drunk. 
Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, shall we move on to the next one? Yes, 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 yes. Trimming bottoms? Trimming bottoms. Trimming bottoms. So Dante and I have slightly different opinions this on this. This is controversial in the pottery world, I say. <laughs> okay, when I look at a bottom that... Oh my god, I can't even say this. Yeah, when when I you, look, <laughs> you look at bottoms? When you look at a bottom... You perv. I know, I'm sorry. No, nah, it's cool. Um, we all do it. <laughs> when I look at a piece that is not trimmed. Yeah. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. For me, when I see that, I go, okay, this person who's making this mug is probably more like producing at a like production level where they're more focused on making a larger number of mugs that are a little bit faster to make. You're making money off this mug and that was your intent when you made it. Like you're well, producing to sell. Well, uh, I don't know. I mean, cause I feel like for me, like I trim my bottoms, but I also produce my work to sell. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, well, me, me too. But for me, like I've made pieces that I trim the bottoms of specifically for it's so difficult because I don't want to disregard one side because the other side is being validated you know like just because I'm pro trim your bottom doesn't mean I'm anti don't trim your bottom yeah like, yes, yes, yes. it doesn't mean I'm anti like like trim your bottoms or you're trash it's yeah. just when I go to like an arts and crafts festival and I see a non-trimmed bottom, you're right. What I think is you're probably a little bit more of a production potter. You, you probably made like thousands of these. But when I see a trimmed bottom, I'm like, maybe there's like hundreds of these. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. there's probably less of them. You probably take a little bit more time on in every individual piece. Mm -hmm. You're not like pumping them out. You're like, <laughs> you're like pumping them out. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, I think that's the difference. Yeah. So the advice that we can give to people who are, you know, considering whether to trim, like my thought is that like, if you're starting out in ceramics or you're, you know, just past the point of being a beginner, it's important to learn how to trim. Yeah, there is um, a cultural standard to trimming your bottom. Yeah. As well, far as potters go. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's it seems like it should be a skill that you should know how to do. It's like, I think it's it's helpful to know how to make different kinds of handles, for instance. Yeah, agreed, but, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah it's, it's weird because it's like, I was trained by a very traditional potter and he put a lot of emphasis on like, whenever you pick up a, a cup, you look at the bottom. The parts of the pot that you cannot see initially are the parts that you should take care of the most because it shows that the potter cared more about the pot. And I'm like, I don't completely agree with that, but I do understand that as far as like old school potters go, it's a, it's a cultural aspect. Yeah. And yeah. I and I can't deny that whenever I see a pot, the first thing I do is look at the bottom. Yeah. Like the number one thing I do is look at the bottom. Yeah. And depending on how nice the bottom is or how like well you took care of it, I'm like, wow, you took care of the space that nobody can see unless they actively look there. Mm -hmm. And I kind of respect that. Yeah. It's like recycling your clay. You're not a bad person if you don't do it. It's just, there's a certain like cultural potter standard that it's like, oh, okay. You recycle your you clay. You recycle your clay, yeah. all right. You don't waste a bit of clay. Yeah. Admittedly though, sometimes those cultural things, again, this is a, this is a whole other episode. Yeah, it's, But yeah. sometimes like just because something is like a cultural norm doesn't mean that it's like canon or sacrosanct or that if you yeah, don't no. do it, like yeah, absolutely. it's just cause you know, cause sometimes it's like, yeah, sometimes you we're, don't need to do those things. We're but. treading a, a fine brown line. The brown is pottery, don't think it's poo. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it's kind of a cultural standard but everyone in that cultural standard understands like if you don't trim your bottom you're not a bad person yeah well hopefully everyone understands we can't speak for yeah but yeah yeah you know actually on that note sorry this is a bit of a tangent but thinking no, yeah, yeah. another thing thinking about trimming is uh, a technique that I wish I had thought of when I was first learning how to trim is yeah. knowing that you can take your needle tool and after you have trimmed a certain amount of the, of the clay away you can use the needle tool to check the thickness of both the bottom and the side of oh, the mug yeah. 
I didn't think to do that. It'll just I, seal right back up too. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. And that's a really good way to like see if you are trimming enough away. Like unless you have a lot of practice making the exact same shape yeah. over and over and over again, it's really hard to tell just by feeling the weight of the mug in your hands or the, whatever you're making in your hands. Yeah, that's like an you expert know? potter thing. Yeah, It's to like yeah. pick up a mug and be like, this is exactly 1.5 pounds. Yeah. Like I can or, tell or, how thick this is. Or just picking it up and being like, oh, this is bottom heavy or this is top heavy. Like yes. that takes time to learn. So use the needle tool. Like it helps a lot. I still yeah. do it sometimes, especially if I'm making a new shape. Yeah, it's, I stopped doing that around my third year because like at the bottom of your pot, especially mm -hmm. when you're, even when you're throwing, yeah. to check that thickness, my brain just knows now like, okay, this is the thickness that I usually am comfortable with. Mm -hmm. But I had to make thousands of bowls and mugs yeah. before I got to that point. Yeah. Um, but just know that even when you're in the trimming process, you can technically stick your pin tool, not all the way through, just through enough to where you understand where the thickness is. And then you could take it back out and just rub it over with your thumb. It seals right back up. Yeah. There's yeah. no harm to it. Yeah. Shall, yeah. shall we go on to the next one? Yeah. Well, you just touched on one oh. that, that, yeah, yeah. that like on a similar note, I think we have it on the list too. Mm. The thickness of your pots. Oh yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Because there was, there was a certain time in my Potter brain career that I thought like the thinner and the finer and the lighter it is, the better it is. Mm. I save more clay. It shows that I can do more with, you know what I mean? Like I thought the, the lighter something was, the better it was. Mm -hmm. And then it took me to like year three until I was like, no, actually most people prefer a little bit of heft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did so? How did you find that? Like, did you find that just from like like tabling and like talking to people about it, or like how did you realize that it was folks... a, it was a duel of talking to people and also handling a mug too many times that warped and being like, why did this warp? Oh yeah, warp warp. <laughs> <laughs> why did this warp? <laughs> and but like, it, I'm gonna say warp again. I'm just gonna keep saying it. Just do it. It would warp and then I would like be like, oh, it's after a while. I was like, oh, it's because I threw it too thin. Yeah. And then I had to I had to succumb to like that. So learning how to throw things super thin is not a positive functional thing, but it is a thing that I should know. Yeah. Well, it can't, I think it can be a positive functional thing, but I think it just kind of puts your, your mug on like hard mode because oh, yeah. the thinner a piece is, the more likely it is to warp because of, you know, inconsistent drying. It's like, yep. if you have a fan that's blowing on a really, really thin piece, it's going to warp more yes. than a piece that's thicker. Yes. Um, as you're moving it, like if you bend it slightly, it'll more like, it'll be more like, like clay remembers the shape. It, it was is, in, yeah. It was in, even if it doesn't look like it's in that shape when yeah. you put it into the firing, but it'll it'll change its shape. You don't notice, so. but it moves a tiny, tiny amounts. Yeah. It like clay, or, or sometimes a lot, depending on how much it morphs. Sometimes a lot. Depending <laughs> on how much it morphs. Yeah. Hashtag morph. Don't hashtag that. Oh my god. Don't hashtag. Hashtag it. Hashtag it, guys. Uh, tweet me morph. Uh. Oh my god. <laughs> That'll be the next uh, discount code. Is morph. It will be. Um, yeah. Not officially yet. Don't don't try and use it. Yeah. But don't maybe do it. at some point. Don't do it yet. When yeah. this episode comes out, I'll give you guys a little little ten percent. A little something. Um, yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah, basically. You want to make sure you have it at a certain degree. Like you don't want it to be super beginner heavy. You know what I mean? Because as a beginner, you're probably mm. almost always going to make something that's heavier mm. than you would like. But when you get to the phase where you understand that you can make things thin, just find the middle ground. Mm. Definitely. I feel like it's less important that a piece is light than it is about how balanced the piece is overall. I agree. Like if you have a really like chonker of a stein. Chonker. <laughs> like, as long as, <laughs> as 
long as like it's well made, maybe you maybe you're going for that okay. aesthetic of really big, really hefty. Yes. You know, and even if the piece is like half an inch thick, if that's the aesthetic you're going for, great, go for it. Like yes. just make sure that it's well made. I think for me, like that would involve a thing being well made if it's like if it doesn't have any cracks, if it's well yeah. balanced, you yeah. know, if it's like not bottom heavy or top heavy or you know, those kind of things. I wish yeah, I wish I knew that. You know, I wish I knew like thinner isn't better, Dante. Yeah. Dingus. <laughs> but like, there's a middle ground to everything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What's What's the next one there? Oh, uh, let's see. Okay, so sanding bottoms. Sanding bottoms is something that I wish I knew as soon as I started selling stuff. Mm -hmm. Because, well, what people do is they have like a machine sander. But I literally just went, unfortunately, I went to Home Depot. I don't go to Home Depot anymore. I go to Lowe's now. But you just go to wherever you can go, essentially. Mm -hmm. You pick up sandpaper. The grade, the granule does not matter and is when your pots are completely done. Here's what I want you to do, right? I want you to get a pot, one of your pots that's not sanded whatsoever, and then get another pot, mm -hmm. sand one of them. Mm -hmm. And by the way, we're talking about sanding the very, very bottom. Like the, the very bottom, The yes. point where, where the mug touches the table, yes. that's the point you want to sand. So you don't mess up Graham Graham's um, table, yeah. which is made of cherry oak. Oh, and has, God. And has like that weird box of cookies with the blue tinfoil one. I want to be that grandma but so bad. But it's never full of cookies. It's oh. always full of knitting things. Yes. Put cookies in it once oh, in your cookies. life. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, sanding the very bottom of your stuff. So what I want you to do is get two mugs, sand one of them, and then touch the bottom of one, like kind of rim it, and then touch the other one. You will notice a world of difference. Mm -hmm. You don't have to have machinery. You don't have to have anything fancy. Just buy, like 10 bucks will buy you 20 of those yeah. slabs, and they last for like half a year. Yeah. I've well, sanded 100 pots and they're fine. You can also use like one of the tools I'm really fond of is, uh, I think it's Diamond Core, has oh, sanding yeah. pads you can buy. I've literally had these sanding pads for like four years. Yeah. They were only like, I think 25 bucks or something per like pad. Yeah. They last forever and I personally I like that because again it's not really expensive but yeah. I don't have to deal with like I don't I just like the it's easier for me to grip yeah you know so but but either way it's like yeah sand sand yeah. the bottoms because it, it does make a difference I like diamond core and diamond tools I want to buy some <laughs> yeah <me laughs> but too. also what's up with a sponsorship though yeah what's good diamond that'd, that'd be awesome like this you can't see what I'm doing but I'm making a diamond with my hands oh I love it it's also if I put it upside down it's the burr call <laughs> 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 Um, all right. What's the next one? Uh, okay, so making glazes. This is all you, my friend. Making glazes is difficult because I only, there's only, I'm not going to go in depth. I promise I won't. I know I talk too much. Shh, just leave a comment down below. You shut up. They can't yeah. leave comments. Oh, yeah. They... Well, I mean, sometimes they can. So depending on what platform you're listening to. I don't on. even know anymore. Send us messages on S Instagram. Send us tweeters and Instagrammers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On the tweeters. Oh my god. I said it like um like my grandma does. Aww. She doesn't know it's just Twitter. She says the Twitters. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> We're gonna be those people someday. I hope yeah, we are. We're gonna be like, can we say it on the hologram? And my <laughs> kid's gonna be like, it's just a hologram, Dad. Oh my god. Cheesy, crazy. Anyway, I wish I knew that you could make glazes. I just it took me like a year or two mm. before I was somebody was like, yeah, those chemicals make glazes, and I was like, what? <laughs> and the guy at Alpha was like, yeah. You can make the stuff on the shelves if you have enough experience with those chemicals. Mm. So you thought that you could only buy like the stuff that came in. Yes. Like like the commercial glazes. Yes. Oh, okay. I okay. thought like for a year or two, I was like, if you want a glaze, you got to go through them, right? Mm -hmm. You got to go through a company. No, you can make your own glazes. There's a certain level of experience where you go like, that's a Chino, that's a Celadon, 
that's this glaze. Oh, look, that's a floating glaze. There's floating red, there's floating blue, there's floating blonde. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, and then as you get higher, you're like, that has lithium, that has rutile, that has cobalt in it. I know that because it's blue. Stuff like that, and you start to understand the chemistry more. But as you get to a certain level, as a, like, if I came up to a potter's table who only uses store-bought glazes, I could probably name the glaze immediately. Uh, yeah. Right. How do you feel like it was beneficial for you when you started learning how to make your own glazes? It's just control. I can literally take a base and make it whatever. It was kind of like learning that you could make glazes like a stepping stone so you yeah. could make your own glazes. Absolutely. Okay. And, yeah. make, and by make your own, I mean like formulate your own glazes so that you create yes. a visual effect that's different than the commercial glazes. Absolutely. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, okay, it's okay. like if I want to make Ron Roy, like Ron Roy's high gloss black is a fantastic glaze, but the thing that makes, because black is not real in, in the scheme of color of the world. Yeah. Like black is, in color theory, black is just a color that other colors make up. So when I make Ron Roy's high gloss black, I slowly learn that, oh, it's red iron oxide and cobalt carbonate or oxide, whatever combined at certain ratios that makes such a dark brown that it looks black, mm -hmm. you know, but it took me a while to learn that. So yeah. even, even the colors you get off the shelves are like made with black mason stain. You just kind of get to learn what makes things at an individual level. And if you want to make glaze, you can control your base a lot more, yeah. but and it the, the takes other, such a long time. The other thing too, that I feel like is, is helpful is that you can save a lot of time and a lot of money oh, yeah. by making your own glazes. You know, if you have to brush all of your glazes on or even pouring them, it takes longer. Now I, yeah. I, I would say that like, I don't know if it's necessarily worth it if you are a, a beginner and you don't necessarily plan on doing a lot of ceramics. I think it's easier to just buy the commercial glazes. It's more of a heavy potter thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But just know that like it's it's kind of a hassle to get set up, like figuring out what glazes you're going to make, how to get yeah. all the materials. That, at least speaking from my own experience, that was a really like confusing process for me. But once I got it figured out, it's like, great, I'm saving a lot of money. It's an investment for sure. Yeah. Like buying the chemistry books, talking to other potters, learning where your resources are in the world, and then trying to make your own glazes. Like, I haven't paid for the color black in like three or four years. Yeah. But that's because I found Stone Black and Ron Roy's High Gloss Black. Mm -hmm. Two very nice functional glazes that go on pottery that I've tested so much so that, like, Ron Roy makes it his job to make functional food safe glazes. Yeah. Right? And because of that, I've just have never bought black. Do I make three gallons of it at a time? Yes. Mm -hmm. But also, do I buy a pint of it at a time at $12 a piece when I can make a good three gallons of it for $100 over the course of a year? No! Yeah. No! <laughs> I just don't. You know, it saves me so much money. It's it's literally like it's like buying a car versus biking. Like I just mm. don't be buying gas. <laughs> All right, what's our next one, Dante? Uh, specific gravity. This has to go with the glazes. So if you do make your glazes, there's always going to be a question of how much water should I put into my glazes. Mm -hmm. And there's happens to there's usually a sweet spot that's like in between 1.3 and 1.6. I'm being heavy handed with it. And that's of the, what the specific gravity is? The yeah, the specific like, gravity is, mm -hmm. it's basically how much water versus minerals are inside of the glaze. Mm -hmm. And that's it. Because glaze is basically certain amounts of, a certain ratio of water and a certain ratio of glaze minerals. Mm -hmm. The combination of the two is glaze, right? But the gravity is basically how heavy is it in comparison to the water? Yeah. And if you want an example, uh, Sue McLeod told me this, because I was very confused. She was like, well, the gravity of water is one. So if the gravity of your glaze is 1.6, that means clearly your glaze is heavier than water, right? But depending on where that gravity is can change your glaze a lot. My uh, Randy's Red hates being at anything above 1.2, right? Or one, any fur from 1.1 to 1.2, it hates it. But anywhere above like 1.4, oh my God, it's the greatest red in the world. Yeah. I love it so much. 
Yeah. And there's a couple different ways to measure specific gravity as well. Yeah. Like, like I, I still use a hydrometer because yeah. the glazes that I use, I have been measuring them with a hydrometer for years because even before I started making them myself, yeah. they were some of the glazes that were available at the community college where I volunteer. Yeah. So for me, I'm still okay with using it, but you've started using a different technique that involves like... I use the I use the graduated cylinder and the gram scale method. Yeah. So what I do is I, I mix up the glaze really well and I put... I usually go 300, 400 milliliters, milliliters uh, are the measurement of water essentially, on a gram scale, and then I divide the grams by the amount of milliliters, and that gives me the number. Mm-hmm. And that number is the gravity of my glazes. Yeah. 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 So if, if you guys have more specific questions about that, like shoot Dante a message. Because again, for me, like I just use the hydrometer. But if you want more detail on like yeah. how to actually do that, like I'm volunteering you for, no, it's fine. <laughs> for giving it's, advice. It's fine. You know why? Be- because Sue actually teaches a class on that. And that's one of her heavy handed issues that she like talks about. She's like, guys, you got to start doing gravity if you're making glazes. She'll probably run you through a whole online course, which is like, here's a glaze at 1.1 gravity, and here it is at 1.5. The difference is astounding. Mm-hmm. It's pheno- like even a point or two away, point 0.1 or point 0.2 away. It's astounding. She's the one who taught me how to do it. And then she showed me how to do it with my Randy's Red. And I was like, I was about to throw away this whole glaze. <laughs> but you have changed my life. Thank you, Sue. Where where can they find her? Um, I will. Can we put it in the show notes? Yes. Is that, yes. We'll put it in the show notes. She's a ceramic artist. You'll see her. We'll put it in the show notes. We'll put it in the show notes. You'll see her. She's a valuable resource in the ceramic art community. Yeah. She's very helpful. Thank you, Sue. Thank you very much, Sue. (laughs) All right. So kind of sticking with this idea of chemistry, another one that we feel like is good to know as a beginner or really at any stage is uh, knowing that different kinds of clays are very different. Like they interact with glazes differently. They have different shrinkage rates. I'll never forget. God, this is probably like four or five years ago now, but I temporarily switched from the be mixed with grog to be mixed without grog. Yes. And I had like probably 10 or 15 mugs. There was a crack from the base of the mug going almost all the way up to the lip. When you switched to be mixed with grog? When I switched, no, 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 when I switched to re- be mixed without grog. Oh yeah, it's it's damn near porcelain, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it, I mean, it's beautiful, it's lovely to work yeah. with, but one of my favorite glazes is weathered bronze. Yeah. And the weather, weathered bronze glaze with the be mix without grog, just the, the, the fit was not right. Yeah. And it screwed up so many of my mugs. And I was like, what's going on? And then I switched to be mix with grog and it was fine. It was great. So, so there's, there's a couple different levels to this. And for anyone who doesn't know what grog is, it's the Potter term for tiny, tiny rocks in your clay. <laughs> and when I say tiny, I mean very tiny. There's some clays that have heavier grog content in them, but usually the grog will change the shrinkage rate or the amount that shrinks in the kiln and out of the kiln. They usually dry a little bit slower because you essentially have little rocks in your clay and those little rocks, I forgot what they're made of, but I'm pretty sure they're made of crushed up bisqueware yeah. that is so fine that it's not like, they sand it down and everything. Yeah, it's so basically, you, it's like sand. It's, yeah, it's ba- yeah, honestly, it's, it's basically sand, but without like the silica content, I mm, believe. Yeah. It's not like glass-like sand. Yeah. But there's different versions of everything. with So there's like Texas White has a certain amount of grog in it. B-Mix has a certain amount of grog with it if you get it with grog. And there's a no grog version as well. Porcelain usually does not have grog in it. Usually. 
And I say that because there's so many different types of porcelain that I probably don't know about in the mm. world. But bee mixed with grog, as far as I'm, I've experienced, usually grabs on to glazes a lot better, but it doesn't show the true color as much. Like, it's not as pure, but it's easier to work with. And the way I think about grog is to think about it like little tiny building blocks. Huh. It's usually easier to work with. It doesn't absorb as much water. It just, like, it's it doesn't shrink as much. And because of that not shrinking as much it usually takes color a lot better. That's usually how I think about it. But if you're ever having trouble with like porcelain, switch to a grog and see how it works with you. Mm -hmm. See how you like it. Yeah. And just, I feel like this is another like kind of cultural thing too. But like when I was a beginning ceramic artist, I kind of thought that like, oh, the goal of being a ceramic artist is to get to the point where you can work and throw with porcelain. Yeah, that is, yeah. And it's like, eh, I don't think that's yeah. necessarily the truth. I'm glad that I experimented with some different kinds of uh, clay bodies just because I think it helps me understand my medium better. Yeah. But I, as a professional potter or ceramic artist, I still use bee mix with grog, even though that's the same clay that like most everybody starts out with. Right, bee mix is the base. Yeah, yeah. But that doesn't mean that it's like, that it's not worthy of being used as as a professional. Yeah, well, I mean, for example, your favorite clay is bee mix with grog, I assume? Yeah, yeah. Mine's redstone. Mine's mm -hmm. not even a white clay body. Mm -hmm. Mine has grog, it feels smooth, it's not smooth. But like, yeah, there's a certain, especially as a beginner, there's a certain culture, well, not even as a beginner, but you're right. There is a certain cultural standard of like, oh, I work with porcelain. <laughs> I mean, admittedly though, kudos to you if you work with porcelain. It's yeah. not an easy material to work with. Like, It's the thing that I like, a couple people on my DMs, at least every week, that are like, what's the clay that I should start out with? And I never suggest porcelain mm -hmm. because one of two things are gonna happen. Number one, you're gonna get porcelain and you're gonna be like, wow, this is really hard to work with. Maybe I should try a different clay. Or you're gonna think that's all the clay there ever is to work with. You're gonna yeah. think porcelain is what you must work with because that's mm -hmm. the cultural standard. Yeah. Or you're gonna work with porcelain and you're gonna love it. You're gonna be a savant, you're gonna make fantastic things with it. Let's pretend you're a genius in clay for mm -hmm. a second, okay? Right off the bat. Every clay from that point on is ruined for you because you've already experienced porcelain, which is like the cream cheese of, of oh. clay. So when you grab onto grog clay, you're gonna be like, what is this? I hate this, it's rocky, it's rough. <laughs> I don't like it. When you get your stuff out, you're gonna have to sand the bottoms because porcelain, you need to sand the bottoms anyway, but grog, you even need to do it more so. It's just like, you're either gonna love it and be ruined for other clay or you're gonna hate it <laughs> and have to move to other clay anyway. <laughs> so, so just like start off with grog clay and work up the ladder. That being said, porcelain does take a certain amount of respect to work with, mm. um, but B-mix is like, if you can handle B-mix, with no grog, it's porcelain-ish. Yeah. All right, so we have two more. We have trimming out. Now, I did not know what you were talking about when you first said this. Yeah, trimming so out, so it's, it's- It's related to lips. It's related to, li it's related to lips and bottoms technically, but it's the same exact thing. So when I trim out, what I usually do is when I throw a mug, let's say you're throwing a mug, you're done making the mug, okay? No handle, you're making the base of the mug, let's say. When you're done, get your sponge, arch it on the lip and push it outwards not going inwards towards the mug, outwards a tiny, tiny bit. If you don't know what I'm talking about, get the closest mug or get the closest like production style, like a Pepsi can next to you. And you'll notice the rim of both of those will bevel outwards a tiny, tiny bit. This is functional. The reason they do this is to make it easier for you to drink out of. Let's imagine you had a cylinder and you choked it in, right? And then you're like, that's a good mug. The, all the water and liquid would accumulate <laughs> at the lip of the mug and then crash onto the sides of your mouth. Mm -hmm. You're doing the opposite of that. Yeah. All right. So when you're throwing, what I want you to do is I want you to get your sponge or your mug or whatever have you or chamois, whatever you got, and just like 
as you're smoothing your stuff, just poke it outwards a tiny bit. It goes miles as far as craftsmanship goes. Mm. Miles. I will say though, there's a little bit of a caveat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you are making a mug for a certain stylistic purpose, yeah. it does not have to be that. Like I think there's still a way to create a little bit of a bevel at the lip yeah. without having the rim of the piece move, flare out. Flare outward. Yeah. My my first thought is like the artist uh, Turkey Merc on Instagram who makes like skull mugs. Yeah. Admittedly I've never seen one of his pieces in person, yeah. but from looking at it, it seems like some of them the lips do kind of curve inward. Yeah. But again, like he's making a very specific stylistic choice. Yeah, it's more art at that point, I guess. Well, I mean, not that ours isn't art, but it's yeah. it's, it's more of a, again, it's, it's done for a specific style. So yes. know that what, like what Dante is suggesting, it's like that is for- Pure function. Yeah, it's- 100% functional. Yes, yes. Yeah. But yeah, all right, so very last one, uh, how to put on a maker's mark or just in general signing your work. You you do this one, cause oh, man. I'm gonna get all ranty. <laughs> I don't know if they tell us in the comments below if you like the rants, but I'm I'm gonna get ranty, so you gotta do it. <laughs> okay. In general, there there's many different ways to sign your work. One of the little tricks that I really like using in my own work is I have a, a rubber stamp and I had that stamp made with my own design on it. I roll up a little ball of clay, I press it into the stamp, and then I press that onto the bottom of my cup. The effect that it gives is kind of like like a wax seal on an old letter. Yeah. And for me, that fits my branding and my aesthetic because I love that shit. Um, like <laughs> I love those like old timey like I have I have like a little like letter seal stamp that I I will sometimes use. But um, whatever, whatever aesthetic like Celtic old timey barbarians be <laughs> doing. Lindsay loved that shit. I do. She loved it. I do. I'm telling you. It's pretty great. Yeah, anything like fantasy like that or just like old timey aesthetic. I don't know. I just, I love it. Yeah. But there are a bunch of different ways to sign your work. That's just one of them. But I think for me, knowing that that was an option that you don't have to, like there's no one way to sign your work. Yeah. So have, have fun with it. Like experiment with some different ways. Cause you know, I don't know, like people kind of do things differently. So. Yeah, actually when I first met Lindsay, I, I like, I noticed her, her, the bottom of her stuff was signed like that with the little stamp. And I was like, I was like, this is cool. How do you do this? She's like, I just get a stamp. And I like, like you would a wax letter, you know? And I've actually moved to that system as well. Yeah. <laughs> Find a way to sign your stuff that is not just a pencil. For, I want to say a long time, I just turned my pin tool around to the non-pointy end yeah. and made a signature and that was it. Yeah. If I mean, you, that's fine though. It's like... fu I mean, the point of it is to identify your work. And if you want to identify your work the way you do it, I just like it because now that I'm in a professional field, which seems a little strange to say, I do that now. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's just the way I have, not I have to do it, it just looks better. It's like giving someone your phone number versus your business card. You're like, yeah, I can contact you with both. I know they're both you, but one's so much fancier. Mm, yeah, it stands out. It's different. It stands. Yeah, it stands out. It's like it's very like in a make-believe world in which somebody knows our name after we're dead in a history book and art in an art history book. Yeah. Somebody would have to be like, in 2019, Dante started using this method. Of, no. And that's how you identify his work from the previous X amount of years. Oh my God, that's the that's the dream. That is the dream, oh just to God. create more children of pottery. <laughs> <laughs> to, yes. the, to the cult, I mean church. Yeah, I mean, I um, mean uh, community. <laughs> yeah, I mean community, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not a cult. All hail the clay gods. for today. Thank you for listening to The Mud Peddlers with Lindsay M. Dillon and Dante of Earth Nation. Want to say hi and see what Dante and I are working on in our studios? Check out the show notes for links to our websites and social media below. 
You can find me at lindsaymdillon.com. That's L-I-N-D-S-E-Y-M as in monster, D-I-L-L-O-N.com. And on Etsy, Instagram, and Facebook at Lindsay M. Dillon. And you can find me at Earth Nation Ceramics. It's spelled exactly how you think it's spelled, but you can also find me on my Facebook fan page and Instagram at the same name at Earth Nation Ceramics. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, or you have a question or topic you'd like us to discuss, take a second to rate and review the Mud Peddlers in Apple Podcasts. It helps our podcast reach new listeners, and we really appreciate the feedback. Thanks again, and we'll catch you next time.